And when you're in an environment where intelligence is voluminous and the credibility of some of those sources are questionable at best, and often there's not much time. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there to lose it. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. To be to get a War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, we meet Catherine Walsh, a former Air Force intelligence officer and former aide-de-camp to the Governor-General. Today, she's Director of Veterans SA here in Adelaide. And Catherine, great to have you here on Life on the Line. I've been wanting to interview you for a long time, so welcome. Thank you, Sharon. It's an absolute privilege to be here. So tell us a bit about where you grew up, because you had quite an unorthodox childhood, didn't you? That's an interesting description, or nomadic. And uh, I guess I come from a a typical uh, middle-class family. I grew up in the country in South Australia um, for the first five years of my life. My parents were small business owners, uh, so we moved from the Clare Valley to uh, Wallaroo, which is by the ocean. And then when I was five, my father, who's been in the construction industry, he's very handy. And uh, so my parents uh, had uh, great aspirations for adventure. And my dad being quite handy, he converted a school bus into a mobile home. And so we traveled around Australia for three years. Now, of course, I didn't see anything as unorthodox about living out of a bus or being homeschooled by correspondence. And it's only been in my later years that that seems quite nomadic or hippie. And yet I now look at my parents and I think that that's that's really not at all where I've come from, but that's sort of where we experienced it. So... Wow. So traveling around Australia in a bus from the age of five. I mean, what kind of effect do you think that had on your childhood? That's a really excellent question, Sharon, because it's something I've reflected on a lot uh, in recent years. I actually think that the greatest impact that had on me was that I learned without realizing it how to interact with a wide variety of people. Uh, So if you think about living in a caravan park for six months at a time, you will have your retired nomads. Uh, There were other people who had children just like us and everybody in between about who who comes together and lives in a caravan park. And it's a really eclectic microcosm of Australian society at large. When we were in location for a longer period of time where we could go to school for a term or two, then my sister and I would go to the local primary school. But other than that, I was exposed to adults really early on and very regularly. So when I became an adult or even just in my high school years, I found that I was able to seamlessly interact with a wide variety of people. So looking back to when you were that small child travelling around Australia in a bus, being exposed to the whole breadth of society, 
What was your perception of the military at that time? Did you grow up looking up to the military or, or thinking that it stood for something or, or was it just not even on your radar? I like how you phrase that. No, it wasn't on my radar. My consciousness of the military was when we were in Darwin, we went to, I think it was Kangaroo 86 and we were able to tour on one of the American aircraft. And of course, that was just so exciting. Uh, and then the flybys of, of a variety of uh, jets and aircraft. But I guess the military really entered my consciousness probably in later primary school when I learned about my maternal grandfather's military history in the Second World War. He was a rat of Tobruk um, and we came back to South Australia when I was eight. So that's when I interacted consciously with my grandfather before he passed away. Now, he never spoke about his time in Tobruk and his, um, and his military service in the Second World War, but it was something I guess I was aware of subconsciously. Um, and then it was only in year 11 when defence recruiting came to my school that there was an overt consideration on my behalf of, oh, the military really is accessible to everybody in Australia. And what would that look like for me? And so that that exposure gave me an avenue that I would never have otherwise contemplated because I didn't have a rich history of that or in my friend my parents' friendship group we 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 didn't have any interaction with with the ADF. That's really interesting. So you talk there about that sense of discovery in a way that the military has something to offer you. Do you remember what happened at that time when you had that sudden sense of discovery? What did it then come to symbolise for you as a choice, as a career option? Well, I guess the fact that it was a choice then opened up my mind. In my later high school years, I had an aspiration to become a, a lawyer. Um, that's not something that I have ever realised, although I did go to uni and in my later life to just scratch that itch of, um, of studying law without the conversion to becoming a practising lawyer. I guess I've always been a curious person and really open to what the world presents itself. And again, that's not something I would have had words for when I was 15 and when recruiting came to my school. So the fact it was an option was enlightenment in its own right. And then that required some some really deliberate thinking about, is this something for me? How would I work in a structured environment? And noting I had no, no real understanding of what the military was, except either what recruiting said or frankly, what those the stereotypes that are perpetuated in movies, being a female, that the, the role models in movies at that time were not relatable. So I had a sense of very, you know, extreme strict discipline, sense of people yelling at you all the time, constant state of danger. And so that's, I guess, the basis upon which I had to sort of make an assessment of, is this a real choice or is this a an option that's available to me that I want to discount in the absence of other truths. And I think that through my initial interaction with recruiting and then getting to, to meet some people, um, I was hosted out at the Air Force Base here, RAF Edinburgh, uh, in my year 12, and I got to meet a variety of different people who served in the Air Force. And I think that was then that ground-truthing piece for me to make an informed choice. So what kind of a young person were you at the age of 15? To be 15 years old and interacting with DFR and for them to essentially obviously see something in you and for you to see something in them, what kind of a 15-year-old were you? A really naive one in retrospect. Gosh, I'm not sure how to 
contemplate that about I had just assumed that I, until you asked that, I thought of myself as being like all the other 15-year-olds. Um, I've always been the youngest in my class by a year, uh, so I graduated high school when I was 16. So I guess I've always been conscious around being able to be able to hold my own on an intellectual level, but certainly from a social maturity perspective, I think that, that chasm became quite apparent in those later years of high school. Uh, so the realisation of DFR in seeing something in me, as you say, is quite remarkable because it's not something that I would have seen in myself. I guess perhaps where based on probably my life experiences and the and the education I had, I was always encouraged to be curious and encouraged to try different things because if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's failure. It means you just learn something along the way and then that helps build character and resilience and is part of the tapestry of who I am. So I guess with that somewhat, um, I don't want to use the word courage, but I guess there is a courageous piece to that, to being willing to step into the unknown and not not knowing where it's going to take you, but trusting and backing yourself, it'll take you somewhere and there'll be something beneficial from that. I think that's probably where I ended up and and why I stepped through that door. So a 15-year-old with courage, prepared to step into the unknown, prepared to try something dramatically different from what you'd grown up with. You were the youngest person to go to ADFA, the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. You were 16 years old. What was that like? It wasn't about being 16. It was about the fact I'd never been away from home for more than a week at a time. That was actually the the, the more telling part for me. I had a really great experience at ADFA. I felt very safe and protected there. And I think that my my disproportionate youth actually helped that. I mean, it could always go any way, couldn't it? But the fact that there were a lot of people who were around me who created a safe environment for me to be able to test and, I guess, flourish a little bit. Uh, but also the fact that my parents trusted complete strangers 1,200 kilometres away from home when they also were not used to being being away from home for more than a week at ever at any one point in time. I think that's a testament to their faith in the institution and gratefully Defence stepped up to the plate to reinforce that, yes, there should be a trust piece in them. 16 years old, I imagine lots of the people around you would have been 17, 18, 19, even older in some cases. What was it like being there? The first six weeks, I guess the basic training part, and that's when they really immerse you into a very foreign environment. And when you're in that environment, uh, and it's almost like having blinkers, uh, so you don't think about the context in what you're being asked to do. Uh, So for example, we would have Reveille in the morning at six o'clock. And so what that looked like was waking up at five to six. That's if I slept through to my alarm. Usually I'm awake from five going, oh, oh, I've got to get up, I've got to get up up at six and you race out onto the landing with your sheets over your shoulder and you bellow Ravelli at the top of your lungs. I must say I do not have a drill sergeant's voice. It was a much higher pitch the louder I tried to be. And then you have 15 minutes to split, which means going in, making your bed, being able to have a shower and being in whatever clothing you needed to be in for that particular activity. And then formed up on the landing with your other in my case, two other first years, quaking and trying not to make eye contact. If you look back at that, that really does 
sound very ludicrous from an outsider's perspective. And I remember a little later in the academy when I'd earned my doona privileges, which meant that I was no longer required to have a taut counterpane with a military crest on it on my bed. I was allowed to have my own quilt with my own, I could express my own individuality by my quilt cover and my pillowcase. And that was such an achievement. And I remember coming back to Adelaide in my first year and telling my best friend, and she looked at me like, like I was the strangest person in the world. Um, so I guess that they are, as I said, on the outside look a little strange, but if they were the mechanisms by which to be able to create a different way of thinking and a sense of urgency, and also it actually fostered a sense of teamwork because if I was the first one out there, I never was, but if I was the first one out there having made my bed showered and being ready, well, That doesn't help anybody else because we all need to be ready in the 15 minutes. So then that's when you'd go in and you'd help your colleagues who are just not having a good day or or vice versa. Um, And I guess that's probably instilled in me that sense of being really aware of my surroundings and uh, being willing to step in uh, gently and behind the scenes if somebody just needs that little bit of a a pep up because my success, the organisation's success, others' success is dependent on us all coming together. So clearly some strong teamwork training happened there, but how else did ADFA change you? You went in as a 16-year-old young woman. What were you when you came out? The churlish answer is 19. I came out, I guess, with a definition of what my pathway looked like in the next few years. I joined the Air Force and through the recruiting process, I had to choose what category or what my job specialty would be. And I remember after going through the psychometric testing and all those first round interviews, I had expected that recruiting would tell me what I was most, uh, what my abilities were best aligned to. And So I hadn't really given it much thought. Um, I know that sounds terrible. And then they handed me a book and said, no, 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 you need to decide which of these employment categories work for you. And so um, I chose uh, to nominate to become an intelligence officer and was accepted as that. Uh, So I went to the academy knowing that would be my short-term destiny upon graduation. I guess as a 19-year-old, unlike many of my peers who I went to high school with, I had certainty for the next four years in terms of I knew what a training and work schedule would look like. I knew I was posted to RAF Edinburgh here in Adelaide. I understood what my role would be in that regard. So to have that sense of security and, and certainty within certain bounds, of course, was probably really quite unique in that regard and therefore reassuring. But because I'm with 300 other people who are in a similar boat, I took it as for granted because that's all of my graduating class, certainly, well, smaller than that, um, 100 in Air Force. We all knew what our next steps would be. I suppose I'm interested to know, though, in terms of how ADFA had changed you as a person, because clearly you came out, you were still a young woman, 19 years old, You are now an Air Force intelligence officer at the very start of your career. But what had ADFA done to shape you for that? What kinds of values, what kinds of things were now important to you? So I don't think ADFA changed me. I think by virtue of being 16 and still being very malleable, they contributed to who I was certainly for the next 10 years. So if we think about values, the Air Force has organisational values just like the Navy and Air Force do, and then the Department of Defence as a whole has values. And so because they are drilled into me, then they were the values that were important to me. But 
as I have become a more mature adult, both before I left the Air Force and subsequently, those values are still really important, but I wouldn't call them my values. But I wouldn't know that had I not had that exposure and that became part of the fabric of me early on. So I guess, yes, it didn't change me. It contributed to who I was for me to then be able to deliberately question myself in a healthy way as I went through my 20s and 30s of what sort of person do I want to be? And so I've kept the the great bits and then there's parts that were really important to me whilst in uniform and if I was still there would still be, you know, central to me. But it enabled me to then be able to confidently describe that's part of me, but this is really who I am as a as a woman and as a as a professional in in a variety of other ways and and frankly as a human as well. Let's go to RAF Edinburgh, which was your first posting after ADFA. So so what was your role there every day? So I was posted to RAF Edinburgh in 2000 as an intelligence officer. And so I was part of a, an intelligence section that provided tactical intelligence support to the P3 uh, Maritime Patrol aircraft, uh, they're known as Orions, um, to their crews. And the reason I said I was posted there in 2000 is because that gives it at a point in time. Timor had started the year before and, of course, the September 11 happened the year after. So the environment I walked into was relatively consistent for the 10, 15, 20 years in terms of operations when I arrived. And, of course, in the period of my posting there, that was a cataclysmic change. Um, so P3s, the reason I went to RAF Edinburgh and chose the P3s is because they were a consistently operational aircraft in the Air Force, um, operating off of our northern approaches, uh, conducting uh, maritime patrol in the southern oceans and rescues, and then, of course, operating out of Butterworth, which is uh, in Malaysia, and undertaking strategic reconnaissance activities as part of a coalition before that became a a word as part of our regular lexicon. You mentioned this was a cataclysmic time. There was much happening politically, geopolitically, globally. Take us back to September 11. And how do you think it impacted your role within the Air Force? I'd actually like to go back a couple of weeks before September 11, which was uh, Tampa. That had a most immediate effect on the P3 operations because, of course, to remind your listeners, the MV Tampa was a merchant ship that uh, rescued um, a number of people who were uh, in distress at sea. Now, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but my recollection is that there is a, an obligation of saving of life at sea, and that's what the merchant crew uh, undertook. And then they were, I understand, customary practices to bring those people who have been rescued to the nearest port which was off our northwest approaches here in Australia. And that's when um, there was a statement by the government that the Tampa wasn't allowed to enter our territorial seas. So that was the first key thing that had an immediate effect on the sort of intelligence that, and not just intelligence, but the how P3 operations in my small part of the world were going to be affected and, and changed you know, for forever um, in that regard. And then a few weeks later was, was September 11. And trying to conceptualise that as a human, I think, was consistent with everybody in the world for that immediate aftermath of hours and days and weeks. Um, but that became pretty clear in the uh, succeeding months as to how that would potentially affect not just the my part of the world, but the Air Force and, and Defence 
as part of a coalition. So the aftermath, as we know, and many of our listeners would know, after September 11 was the precipitation of increased engagement within the Middle Eastern area of operations. And that included you. So tell us how that came about and your role in the region. So I was part of the um, inaugural headquarters in the Middle East in January 2003 to go and support P3 operations. So we had uh, been, I guess, preparing for that for a few months beforehand, um, recognising that this was really different. So again, from my part of the world, it was almost difficult to comprehend because there was no point of comparison uh, for us. Um, We were also, the P3s were also going... um, to a place where we were not being co-located with the Americans. And so much of doctrine was pinned on not just being part of coalition operations, but a a close synergy and and integration. Because in America, P3s or or their maritime patrol aircraft are actually part of the US Navy. And so that's who we had always um, had exercises with and exchanges with as well. Being part of that inaugural headquarters was just such a steep learning curve for me. I was 22 and being trusted to be part of that in retrospect, again, is that sign of faith. It wasn't because I was one of the only people available. They, they had a whole team to choose from and and I had been selected as one of two to go as the intel cell and recognizing that there's doctrine and then there's practicality and somewhere in the gray middle is where we kind of ended up Uh, so we started our operations there at the beginning of 2003 that was educational because from an intelligence perspective if, if I take a step back what an intelligence officer's role broadly is in my view particularly in that providing support to crews is to how to give them the best information around what their threats are and how they can best uh, so they can make informed decisions about how to best avoid or manage those to be able to execute the mission that they need to and how to come home safely every single time. Um, that is a massive responsibility when you've got 15 people on an aircraft. Now, I'm not making those tactical decisions. Obviously, the the captain of the aircraft is, but they're basing that on what I say or what I don't say. And when you're in an environment where intelligence is voluminous and the credibility of some of those sources are questionable at best, then there's a judgment call because it's raw intelligence that I was often synthesizing early on. And often there's not much time between getting the golden stuff and briefing the crew for them to be able to try and make informed decisions as best they can on doing what they need to do and getting home safely. And if they can't get home safely, then what are those contingency plans? And that combat search and rescue piece was part of an intelligence function as well. You mentioned there about safety and about supporting people in a complex, high tempo and high risk environment. What about your own safety? Did you consider the risk of what you were doing by deploying to the Middle East? And indeed, were your family supportive? Were they concerned about the risk? I think that's a difficult question to answer because I think it would be fair to say that my experience is probably common with a number of other military people, which is you train to do a certain job and to be able to do that job to its maximum means you necessarily have to deploy, which means you necessarily expose yourself to risk. So whether or not that is a conscious contemplation or that is just tacitly accepted because that's the job you need to do, um, I know that from my perspective, I was, I was of course, nervous, um, but that was probably more nervous around the unknown because there wasn't a point of comparison. Um, and there's also 
this was the first opportunity that I had had at the you know at the age of 22 uh, and Australia had been in a long period of peacetime operations before that so I think that that probably also can overrode if I had any um, significant apprehension I think it was that desire to do what I've been trained to do to prove that I can and do it effectively to be part of a bigger picture um, outcome and effect um, I, I don't recall anything more than just anxiety around what does this look like rather than anxiety around risk or personal safety um, I know my mother was concerned um, Mothers are always concerned, though, no matter how old their children are. So um, she acknowledged that, but also um, I, I respect the fact that she she wasn't really overt about that. She just would ha would and has always supported me in whatever uh, I needed to do. And I was lucky to be able to ring home once a week um, and just you know that was reassuring for her to hear my voice, as reassuring as it was for me that they're still on the other side of the world. Tell us what it was like, though, leaving Australia and going into such a completely different environment. It must have been, I assume, the first time that you'd been to the Middle East in area of operations? Yes, it was the first time I'd been to uh, the Middle East and uh, the second time I'd been overseas. We were on a base, so I guess that necessarily uh, my view was pretty narrow by being there. Um, the people I interacted with were other um, Air Force, Australian Air Force people or coalition partners. So I guess within that, within that, um, within that narrow construct, there was a familiarity uh, around that. There was a common language. There was a common understanding of where we've come from and why we're there. Once we got there, there really wasn't time or energy to think about anything else except what do we need to do next and that the first couple of weeks of setting up the headquarters uh, I mentioned earlier that there was a lot of learning for everybody because back then how often had people set up some sort of semi-permanent headquarters and the assumptions that had been made based on doctrine don't always come out in practicality uh, and then certainly once the operational tempo started to kick in there were two of us in the intel cell and two crews so we kind of aligned ourselves to a, a crew each um, but you know crews will fly as part of a bigger picture coalition flying program and it could be an 8am takeoff one day and it could be a 1pm takeoff the next and so the body clock just for everybody uh, is just mixed up all the time so you snatch sleep when you can you try and make sure that you get some exercise because that was my introduction to Baskin and Robbins um, that could have gone really badly very quickly um, but uh, again I guess there's a rhythm in that inconsistency that we all found to some way shape or form. Now you also had the opportunity to learn the Arabic language and become a linguist so did that follow your deployment or was that part of your deployment? That followed my deployment so I went to the Defence Force School of Languages to study uh, Arabic for uh, for 12 months after I came back. Um, I, I, I appreciate you calling me a linguist I think my uh, comprehension was uh, not even basic it was rudimentary at best because it is such a difficult language to learn. I remember, for example, that um, I wanted to say one day that it's very cloudy and instead I said it's very apricots because just a vowel sound change uh, has such a significant difference. I think anybody who studied another language
language has had one of those faux pas before. Um, and also what I studied was something called modern standard Arabic, which is sort of like educated Arabic. Um, above that is classical Arabic, which is very much the uh, remit of, um, of um, uh, religious uh, clerics. Uh, and then there's colloquial sort of street language, which differs between each of the Middle Eastern countries. Um, so when it came to the end of my 12 months, we did a cultural immersion tour. We went to Egypt for two weeks and I found that most of what I'd learned only worked in a school classroom context because when I was at the hotel or when I was trying to to barter or purchase a kebab on the street or just interact with 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 people just like me in everyday settings, um, my language skills weren't set up for that at that point in time. Now, tell us a bit about how you came to be the aide-de-camp or ADC, as it's known, for the Governor-General. Because I've seen the photographs, Catherine, and you look really quite splendid with your aiguillette on your shoulder and with all the kind of finery. How did you come to get a job like that within the ADF? Uh, so in the Air Force, they uh, at that point in time, they would call for nominations on an annual basis. Um, and it was something that I truly didn't think I'd be competitive for, um, Remarkable people become ADCs and then if you look at um, some of our our, um, leaders either in the uh, private or public sector or those who've gone on to have illustrious military careers, usually at some point in time there's a vice regal element or exposure to that. Um, So I applied um, and it was a competitive process and the Governor-General of the time, uh, General Michael Jeffrey, who passed away late last year, um, he personally conducted those interviews because it's part of his personal staff um, and he chose me. Um, and so I was one of three aides de camp, uh, one from each service, uh, that were there to support him full time for the 12 months that I was there. And what does the role involve? Because we get to see the photographs, we get to see the ADCs when the Governor-General has official engagements and the like, but what do you actually do? So I was part of a team of five people, so two civilian aides and one each from the three services, to support at that point in time General and Mrs Jeffrey to in the conduct of their official duties. So if I think about what their official duties look like, um, there would be support in terms of what they would host at Government House. There was a totally different team that did those internal activities, but there was a requirement most of the time for um, the aides to participate or to contribute to that. Most of ours was outward facing. So when the Governor General would be, um, a trip would be planned to go to location X, then uh, and this is what the three-day program would look like with, say, 10 events, then we would liaise with each of those um, organisers. Um, and those events can range from community events to um, uh, professional uh, conferences to sporting activities. to, to, We all know that there's a huge gambit of things that uh, Governors General attend. Um, And so we would work with each of those organisers to make sure that protocol was adhered to, um, helping them understand why that was important um, and making sure that the arrangements were in place so the Governor General can do what at that time he needed to do 
to the best of his ability, but also then make sure that the event was a success for the organisers in the same way. Um, and then often we would be part of an advance party that would go up 24 hours beforehand, do a run through again with each of those organisers, react when something didn't go according to plan. Um, I guess the other thing too is that there's a number of internal activities, as I mentioned before. Um, we've all seen the investitures, that's the biannual um, provision of the Australian Honours and Awards system. Um, so to be part of that is one of those, is left an indelible, an indelible imprint on me uh, about seeing uh, particularly those who are awarded medals of the Order of Australia, people who are just like you and me doing things because it's the right thing to do. There was a lady who was a foster carer from regional New South Wales. She'd been doing that for 20 years. She bought a new hat so she could go to government house because she never would have thought that this would be an outcome of what she did because it was an intrinsic motivation that was genuine and authentic right from the word go. Um, so that was amazing. And then many school groups go through government house in Canberra. And uh, so the house staff would take them through the house and gardens and point out the beautiful artwork for, on loan from the National Gallery and talk about the landscaping and, and all the rest. And then the ADC would come in in full regalia, so our full service dress with the agalette, as you pointed out, which is that gold braid bit, um, and uh, and ask questions, answer questions of the school children, and talk about what the constitutional roles of the Governor General are. And you could always pick the sort of questions that you would get, like what's that gold braid or why are your shoes so shiny? Um, so that was always a bit of fun because the natural inquisitiveness that often is unbridled by primary school children in particular. Um, th there were a few uh, red-faced moments, I think, when I can't um, – uh, can't recall any in particular, but I remember that sensation of, oh, a seven-year-old's just asked me a question. I'm not really even sure how to answer. Um, but delightful to be able to have, for them to have that exposure so early and learn about something that is so fundamental to our democracy and to be part of that. I'm interested to know in a role like that, how do you manage the public and the private? Because inevitably, when you're working for the Governor-General, you have that unique behind the scenes insight. And yet you've also got to remember the importance of, of maintaining absolute confidentiality and respect to privacy. How do you achieve that when you're in a role such as an ADC's role? I guess for me, that's my background as an intelligence officer already enabled some sort of compartmentalization. Um, so uh, I think um, that you know, in an intelligence role, when people ask tricky questions, then it's pretty easy to be able to to deflect away uh, and talk about you know what's already in the public media or or something like that. And that would be similar. But most people are just so respectful of the role of the Governor General. I, I can't recall any particularly tricky or sticky situations where um, there was any potential for um, a blurring of that of that divide. What did you discover? about the role of the Governor-General through doing that job. Were there any revelatory moments where you thought, I never knew that that was intrinsic to the role? Was it an education for you in any way? Oh, it was definitely an education in lots of ways. Um, I guess to directly answer your question, 
Vice regal positions work so they are representatives of and engage with the community so often um, and take very little time off. And so the stoicism and the fortitude and the staying healthy all the time for General and Mrs. Jeffrey was something that I really admired uh, and if there was time to still fill, they would both fill it because they saw their civic duty um, as being so such a privilege and one that they needed to serve back into the community. So that work ethic, that sense of uh, of citizenry, I think is something that really has left a, a huge impression upon me and it's become part of who I am as well. Um, I think I already had the preconditions but perhaps didn't uh, embrace it as deliberately. Uh, and then in terms of an education more broadly, um, I got to meet, as I mentioned before, some really quite outstanding individuals in uh, in terms of the quality of their character, um, the professional and intellectual nous, their sporting prowess. Uh, one of the most amazing activities we went to that stays in my mind is the Country Women's Association of New South Wales. Uh, they had their AGM down at Jindabyne and uh, I realised very early that you, um, you definitely want to be on your best behaviour in a group of feisty, determined and very confident women and, and uh, I want to be like them when I grow up. Uh, and we sang the national anthem and we've all been in situations where national anthems are usually muttered. Uh, this was sung with such gusto, regardless of one's pitch or voice, that actually brought tears to my eyes and I've never felt that since, that sense of genuine patriotism and pride and meaning behind the words of a song that sometimes just can be words. So moving on from your work with the Governor-General as the ADC. What were the closing years of your of your time in the Air Force like? Because you did then decide to discharge and enter the public service, which we'll come to in a moment. But what else did you achieve before you left the Air Force? So after uh, working at Government House, I moved to America for a couple of years. Uh, and that was really interesting to be immersed in a culture that is seemingly similar, but starkly uh, different to here. Um, I know this sounds silly, but for example, um, walking through the supermarket and how things are organised in a in a Woolworths or a Coles in Australia aren't quite the same in a in a Fry's or a, a Costco in America. And so that would be those constant reminders of this is similar, but it's not the same. Um, and I think that actually, from a cultural awareness and competency perspective, was more jarring than if I'd gone into an environment knowing that it would be very vastly different. I really enjoyed those couple of years of being overseas, but it also made me really appreciate how fortunate I am to be an Australian and to come home to Australia. And then after that, I had my last posting, which was with the Defence Security Authority, uh, where I was on secondment with a, another government agency. And I guess that was my my second opportunity to see what it would be like as part of a blended team of a military civilian team in the public sector uh, and um, started to open my eyes to what possibilities could present themselves and, as it turned out, they presented themselves sooner rather than anticipated. So why did you decide to separate from the Australian Defence Force? What precipitated that decision to leave? So I'd been in the military for 14 years by that stage uh, and I had a wonderful time. I learned so much and I still think back on that fondly and, and the fact that I had such a positive experience I think is testament to the fact that I'm still an active reservist, um, you know, 10 years later. 
an opportunity knocked on the door. And again, in the same way as how recruiting came to my school and created an option I hadn't contemplated, this was similar. Somebody said to me, hey, I think you'd be really great at this particular role in the public sector, elsewhere in the Department of Defence. Why don't you think about it? And I'm like, oh, oh, they... I hadn't. And what do I do now? Well, all right, let me try because you don't get anywhere unless you try. And then before I knew it, I had a job offer and I went, oh, well, how about I give it a go? And um, if not, I can always come back to Air Force. And so we parted on, I think we parted on great terms, uh, knowing that I could always try to reapply to come back if that didn't work out for me. And as it turns out, I've been a public servant for 11 years since. And today you're the director of Veterans SA. How would you describe that role and what you're trying to achieve in that role? Just to put it in context for your listeners, uh, Veterans SA is a state government agency here in South Australia. We were formed in 2008 and we're the first state or territory jurisdiction to recognise the importance of a veterans affairs portfolio and the establishment of a minister and therefore an agency behind that. Before that, um, it was the sole purview of the Commonwealth through the Department of Veterans Affairs. So I have a very close working relationship with the Commonwealth, but but we are a state government agency and, and respond to our minister um, of the day who currently is the Premier. So I came to become the Director of Veterans SA in April 2020, so I've been here for about 18 months now. And it's a real opportunity to and a privilege to be ahead of an agency where you can be part of an evolution to support the community. So every single decision and every single initiative that my team and I explore um, is always premised on how is this going to benefit part of our community of veterans and families. Uh, so we have uh, tried to recognise the fact that there is no homogeneity in the veteran community. I mean, in any cross-section of any community, there is rich diversity and, and veterans is no different. Um, and so we were trying to work out how do we best position ourselves to the benefit of the community across the next 10 years. And where we saw our value add is to be able to influence across other government departments in state government, but also in the Commonwealth uh, to be able, they're the ones who've got the resources and the imprimatur to make policy or program changes. Uh, so for example, how do we influence into the Department of Health or into the Department of Corrections? Uh, again, taking a community view and mixing that with a discipline view of you know, whatever that, that core focus is to then come up with something that is considered and can improve the lot in some small way for veterans and their families. And to me, that's what the definition of innovation is. It doesn't have to be whiz-bang and huge. Innovation is the incremental change for the better of somebody, betterment of somebody. Um, so that's what I come to work every day to try and do. And I guess I come back to anything we do and we decide to explore has to have the veteran and their family central to that. And why is this worthwhile for them? And you mentioned that you're also still working as a reservist in the Air Force. 
I gather this has got something to do with hot air balloons. So I'm intrigued to know more about hot air balloons, which I didn't even know existed with regard to the Air Force and and how as a reservist you come to get to play with hot air balloons. It's a fabulous story, actually. So when I left the full-time Air Force um, as an intelligence officer, my first few years was as an intelligence officer in the reserves. But because I wasn't in that space on a regular basis, I actually found I was a I felt I was a liability because I wasn't able to contribute my best every single time I put my uniform on. Uh, And so then I explored a few other different reserve opportunities. And and again, I saw an advertisement to become ground crew for the hot air balloon. And you'll notice a pattern here. I applied. I thought I'd try. And uh, I was selected to be part of the ground crew, which um, is the, so the balloon flight is based in Canberra. We actually have four envelopes. That's the balloon bit. Um, and we've got crew mostly based in Canberra, but also on the East Coast. And then I'm here in Adelaide. Uh, so we get to go out um, as, a, as a community engagement and a public relations tool uh, most of the time. And so that, again, it brings the parts that I loved and thrived on when I worked at Government House to bear in my reserve job every single time. So as ground crew, I'm part of a team who help assemble the the balloon. It's a pretty basic aircraft in that regard. Um, And we pop the pilots in and then they take off and we hop into the chase vehicle and uh, then meet the balloon at the other end when it lands. I just want to qualify though, when I talk about a chase vehicle, um, on a good flying day, that means we don't move very far or very fast. Because of course, the basic steering of a balloon is based on wind. And so you can't control that. All you can control is how high or low you go and and therefore the the speed and the direction of the winds at each at each altitude um so if the balloon is moving fast it's a very bad day for the pilot and the passengers and uh, it's a very bumpy landing as well so we like it when it's nice and steady there's just a bit of a breeze to push the balloon along um and then it's a nice basket down first landing as well so have you actually been in the balloon have you had a ride in the hot air balloon i have i um only i've had the opportunity to go up once and it was over Canberra in the middle of winter and that's just the most beautiful still moment in that city and it's before everyone wakes up so you have this all laid out before you all to yourself it's absolutely magical now earlier on in this interview you talked about how you'd rethought your values and you were now clear about what those values are can you share them with our listeners When I left the military, I knew I had values, but I didn't know how to express that in words. And I have to say that it's it's taken me a number of years to be able to find the ones that really describe who I am and what I stand for. And it's difficult because values by their very necessity are deeply personal. And I think that they can and should change as well, depending on as we evolve and as we learn as, as humans. So they've really crystallized for me in in this particular job I'm in as the director of Veterans SA, but already were in their in their evolution um, and their maturity beforehand. Um, so what's really important to me is um, around equality, uh, and I strongly believe in being an egalitarian. So everyone uh, should have an equal opportunity to be able to participate or contribute in some way. And I think that that's 
a driving force behind the thinking that my team and I have in terms of introducing new initiatives or programs for the veteran community here in South Australia is how to make sure that they are as accessible as they possibly can to enable people to make informed choice to participate or to not. Um, That's very, yeah, that is core to who I am. So I guess some of the other values that have really come to the fore for me as well is uh, around um, kindness. That sounds like a really um, soft and sometimes insipid quality to have, Um, but I value kindness because to me it's about selflessness. For, for, For someone to be kind to somebody else means that not that they're putting themselves second, but it means that they acknowledge the importance of the other person. I remember when one of my previous bosses before I worked for her the adjective that came to mind uh, was kind. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is going to be an interesting working relationship. But since then and seeing what true kindness in action can be, then that is incredibly important. And I think that that's a gift that you can give others. Um, it's different to compassion. It's about um, putting putting others on at least the same level as yourself. Um, so that's incredibly important to me. And I think the third value um, or personal quality, I'll I'll use both of those terms, is around being curious and inquisitive uh, because I think that a a learning mind is a constantly growing mind and that every human can learn from every interaction. Uh, I said earlier that in my team we when we try things, if it doesn't work, it's not failure. It's about we've learned something and we'll do it differently next time or we won't do that part again. Um, and I think that with that then comes a great sense of um, of courage and self-satisfaction, but also, which sounds self-serving, but I think that's important as well because um, there needs to be an intrinsic motivation in oneself whilst also benefiting others. It's about the proportionality of of where that sits, though, as to whether or not that's a, a value or a desirable quality. So that probably felt a little bit deep, but I guess um, all three of them kind of are by being an egalitarian, by being kind and being curious and inquisitive and wanting to constantly learn. To me, the three of those values and qualities coming together makes an absolutely invincible person. So with that in mind, those three qualities, those three values, where do you see yourself going now? Well, I learn on a daily basis. Um, No two days in my current job are ever the same. Um, And I value that. And that's something that I really, uh, I really enjoy about the role. I am in the position of director for for a bit longer still. Uh, So I'm not trying to be coy. I'm not quite sure where my next steps might be uh, personally or professionally. Um, I think that it's been pretty clear through our conversation that I like to plan, but also when an opportunity pops up, I then actually think about what that might look like. And most of the remarkable things that I've experienced in my life and the pathway that's led me to here have not been through planning. Uh, that plan got thrown out the window when I decided to take the, the bush track instead and see where it took me. I wouldn't call myself adventurous, but maybe in retrospect, there's a, there's a little bit of a leap of faith every single time. Catherine Walsh, thank you for sharing with us your career highlights, your courage, your kindness, your curiosity. Thank you for being on Life on the Line today. And thank you, Sharon, for the opportunity. This is Sharon Maskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line.
Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTL Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. And find out more about this show and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...